So let's bow before the Lord and ask his holy presence to be here with us this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come to you with joy in our hearts because we know that this Advent season is a time when we can be open and especially touched by you, thinking of how God's great love provided a way for our salvation by sending his son as a baby and by mingling and becoming one of us, Emmanuel, God with us. So we pray that you will uh, open our hearts and our minds to what, it has, what you have in store for each of us this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it was the first Christmas that we lived in Illinois, and uh, we were looking forward to celebrating Christmas as a family with grandparents for the first time. I took our two boys shopping where my plan was that we were going to be buying gifts for the various people that were coming to our home. Their idea, of course, was a little different than mine. Their idea was to survey the scene and then start saying things like, Oh, Mommy, I want that. Mommy, can we get that for me? That's what I want. Boy, I want something like that. Mommy, Mommy, look here. And I said, Oh, as their mom, I hadn't prepared them for this experience. We went home without making any purchases, and I embarked on a little teaching plan. And it started out with the reason we have Christmas at all. And I told them about how God gave a gift to all of us in Jesus, his son. And that the reason we buy gifts for people is to symbolically do, as God did, share his love with those that were around us. I explained that when Christmas comes to our house, we want to have something special for each person. Not just what we want or just what we think would be fun, but what would seem like a special kind of a gift for this person. We want to talk about the person, think about it. What kinds of things do they like? What colors are important to them? Do they read and would love a new book? Uh, maybe it's music. Maybe it's some item for... Um, their coffee table. It could be anything. But try to find something special so that when we give them that gift, it says we've been thinking about them, that it says that we love them, and it further reminds them every time they see the gift of our love. One of the boys, when we went back to the store and had had this bit of guidance, uh, was thinking about his grandpa. And his grandpa was a blacksmith and uh, used a lot of tools. So Grandpa, in his mind, needed some gigantic tool. And we walked in through Sir Sears to the mall back in Illinois, and he passed the tool department, and I was still on my way in when this little boy saw a screwdriver about this long and about, as, well, bigger around than one of my fingers as far as the blade of it. And I looked at him and thought, that's the most humongous screwdriver I've ever seen. And he knew for sure that that was going to be his gift for his grandpa. So we got home, and with a sparse bit of paper and most of a roll of scotch tape, that gift was wrapped. My father loved the gift, but more than that, he loved the wrapping. He said, that's a gift when somebody gives it to you, you can't let go. 
It stuck to everything. <laughs> it had so much tape on it. But the important thing about this little illustration is that preparation is essential. It's essential for meaning to be transmitted. You cannot count on any kind of an automatic transfer, thinking about God giving his son at Christmas time to walking into the mall at Christmas time. There's nothing that intersects. All we see and all we hear grabs our attention, and it grabs us at a very superficial and a very greedy place. I want it, I want it, and I want it. But gift-giving at its best is modeled after God's gift. It shows our love and our thought. And so the season of Advent, we have four Sundays. Four Sundays before Christmas, special time to prepare for Advent, for the celebration of God's greatest gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. As Dan Clendenon says in his Advent essay in the Journey with Jesus website, we need to take in the fact that the sacred baby Jesus entered into our secular world, the eternal into the temporal, the heavenly into the mundane. Yes, into a world filled with degradation, with hostility, with human suffering beyond our imagination, but one that was not so different from how our world is today, nor from the one in which the prophet Isaiah lived. Howard Peskett, in his Bible study book, Isaiah, Trusting God in Troubled Times, describes a bit about Isaiah's time. And I think you'll see a lot of similarities with our time. Turbulent times, when the Assyrian army was bent on expanding out further and further and, 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 and building their empire larger and more cruel than any Western Asia had ever seen. Of course, Isaiah had seen Israel crack, collapse, and vanish in a maelstrom of intrigue, assassination, siege, deportation, and imprisonment. Isaiah was an esteemed citizen of Jerusalem. He spent 40 years in the corridors of power and challenged the king, Judah's leaders, and all the people to trust God. He was King Hezekiah's advisor. The leaders of Judah sought to have an alliance with Egypt as the Assyrians became even more aggressive. And Egypt had a new battle weapon, the cavalry. And that was thought to bring great strength to their army. Now others in leadership thought that was ridiculous, and they wanted to just make a deal with the Assyrians, thinking that that would spare them losses and defeat when battle began. But Isaiah's counsel was to wait, wait on God and trust in him. Now, Judah's leaders thought that trusting in God would not be sufficient. And Isaiah didn't mince words. A.J. Motyer, in his commentary on Isaiah, says that Isaiah called that policy a ramshackle refuge of lies and death that would be swept away by a flood 
That was prophesied in chapter 28. He called it a bed that was too short and a duvet that was too narrow, a recipe for a long and sleepless night of frustration. Isaiah said that the leaders of Judah were like a bulging wall that was just about to collapse and flatten, or a piece of pottery about to be smashed so thoroughly that there would not even be one tiny fragment left. The Egyptian cavalry, he said, would never produce victory, just a hectic flight into a desolate place. Isaiah spoke strong words, but he also lived them with a passion, and he lived them in tenderness before the people and the king. Isaiah encouraged the king to trust God, even when the campfires of the Assyrian army were right there. And that in, uh, apparently invincible army was at their gates of their city. They could hear the crude and roaring threats of the Assyrian generals coming over the walls. But you remember, the entire army was destroyed as Isaiah interceded in prayer. Isaiah was a social critic. He remorselessly applied the yardstick of God's law to all he saw. He was a prophet who saw both the present and the future in an eternal light. He was a pastor and a shepherd, looking with compassion on his fellow citizens and feeding them by teaching them. And he was a poet, seeing the same things as others, but seeing them more fully, more deeply, and more sharply. The hundred pages of Isaiah's 40 chapters, ex excuse me, of Isaiah, represents 40 years of faithful ministry. That even today, if you study the book of Isaiah, you will find a wonderful center of stillness and strength and God's presence. So that's the backdrop from Howard Peskett. Let's read our text. We are going to look at Isaiah 64, the first nine verses. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come down to help, to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name. No one strives to lay hold on you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O oh Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Keep your Bibles handy, because you might like to refer to them as we go on. And uh, 
We're going to pull up themes out stanza by stanza of this poetic prayer from Isaiah. First off, in verses 1 to 3, he's really making a statement of a heartfelt wish. If only. Have you ever said that? If only I had known this or that, how much better something would have turned out to be. If only I'd said this instead of that, how much less fuss would have been made as time went on and so on. I had a friend in Illinois, Gladys, four children. I remember her telling me once about standing in the kitchen as her four children were eating breakfast, getting ready for school. Orange juice was dripping off the end of one table while milk was spilling at the other end. Two other two kids were fighting over the box of cereal that only had one serving in it, and so on. And Gladys stood there and she said, this thought came to my mind. If only my kids would shape up, what a wonderful mother I could be. If only. Mott, you're in his commentary on Isaiah, says that the rules of Hebrew grammar require an understanding of a past reference here. It is not, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It really should say, oh, if only you had rent the heavens and come down. Something in the past. And he was thinking, and you can read it in prior chapters in Isaiah, and especially Isaiah 63, the tragic occurrences and things that had happened and why he's making this plea in a prayer. Isaiah is thinking that if only God had been there, it could all have been so different. The Lord's mere presence would have sufficed to change everything. The plea of Isaiah to come down is the theme of this stanza. Come down and make an impact on people. Impact your enemies. Impact the nations. And then he adds that when you did come down, awesome things we didn't expect actually happened. The mountains trembled. Verse 3. You see, a God as great as Isaiah knew would make all things right if he would just show up. It did not have to be like this. Now in verses 4 and 5, the if only has been replaced by maybe it's too late to hope. Why should God intervene for people like us? The hard questions come to Isaiah as he thinks about the tragic situation of all of life for the people of Israel. We probably identify with that despair, too, as we look around our world. Dan Clendenin talks about the Hallmark Christmas card. And he says, they're not authentic in the face of the reality of our world. He says that the brutal realism, the brutal realism of Asaph in Psalm 80, which Adele read a minute or two ago, and Isaiah, are something that help keep us from over-sentimentalizing Christmas. We can make it so sentimental that uh, it doesn't mean anything. If we face the whole picture as the psalmist and Isaiah did, we rightly beg God to restore, revive, and rescue us, just as Adele read. That's our only hope. Montyer points out that the same Hebrew description encapsulating the thought of ancient times in verse 4 and the continued in sin in verse 5 are used to talk about God having, being, God having gone on forever. 
He's ageless. It just, he just continues on and on and on. And those same Hebrew words describe our sin. They just go on and on and on. There is no automatic expectation of how God should respond here. In fact, the prophet asks at the end of verse 5, how then can we be saved? But the embracing theme of this stanza is wait. For the text tells us that God acts on behalf of those who wait. Wait, the essence of Advent. Wait. Hardest thing to do sometimes, isn't it? Let me tell you what wait does not mean. When I worked at the senior center in Santa Clara, I knew some women who came over to the center around 9, 9.30 in the morning, staked out their claim of bingo table space with a box of Kleenex and a little cushion for their chair and uh, little stands to hold their bingo cards just right and uh, um, little snack sandwiches and what have you. And uh, then they'd have a coat and a sweater and a scarf or two just in case the air conditioning worked one way or another, what have you. And by about a quarter to ten, and bingo started at 12 noon, they'd be at the front desk. I think Nancy might have been one of the people sitting behind the front desk during some of those days. And the phones would be ringing, and there were a number of lines that came into the senior center. And you know how it would be, two ladies answering the phone. Could you hold, please? I have another call. Click. You know, they were busy like that. And this is wait. And you glare one to the other to the other to the other as you tap your quarter on the counter so you can buy your cup of coffee because you have to rush in to be ready for bingo in an hour and 45 minutes. That is not wait. That is uh, obnoxious, explosive, uh, passive aggressiveness at its worst. That is not waiting. Wait does not mean a passive, boring, vacuous thing. Wait, according to Ma'ir, is the exercising, and you get that word, exercising, exercising a patient, confident, expectant faith, simple in its unwavering trust in the divine promises. Not only does the text say, God responds to those who wait. But it says God responds to those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. God loves justice. We get to the next stanza, verses 6 and 7, and see what really happens when God shows up. Remember in verses 1 through 3, if only you'd shown your face, God, how everything would have been okay, how ev differently everything would have turned out. Now God shows up. But the reality here is quite different. The reality of sin breaks through. Listen. Unclean, like the leper. All of us have become unclean, verse 6. Filthy rags, disgusting and putrid is our best effort at righteousness. Verse 6, we have become as a shriveled leaf that just simply is swept away by the winds of sin. 
That's also in verse 6. Disinterest and neglect of God. Verse 7. No longer in communion with God. And finally, divine alienation. Verse 7. God has removed himself and has allowed sin to take its dark, black course. Wow. What a dead end. But now. Did you get that? That three little letter word. But. It causes a 180 degree turn, doesn't it? If I said to you, I have a friend and she's just a wonderful woman. But. What happened to that wonderful woman? She just dropped off the cliff, didn't she? Because I said, but. Now I'm going to dish the dirt on her. That's what that little word but says. It gives us that 180-degree turn. So from this, God removing himself and allows sin to take this dark black course, we now are at the but. But now. The other side of God's changelessness appears. Not only is he changeless in his requirements, as we saw in verses 4 and 5, he is changeless in his grace and mercy. He is the potter that fashions the pot. It is the work of his hand. It simply exists because of the desire in the potter to make it. It has an unchanging relationship to the potter. And isn't that wonderful as God's fallen and failing children or crackpots. We need to lay claim on that unchanging relationship we have with the potter, with God himself. We pray according to his power and his unchanging character. Behold, look, we pray, we are your people. We are indeed in need of a savior. Emmanuel, God with us. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Our Heavenly Father, as we go through this Advent season, this season of preparation, this season of waiting for that wonderful celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, we truly focus on the fact that preparation fits right there in the middle of waiting. Waiting for the celebration of Jesus' birth so that anew and more completely we can rejoice in the joy, the wonder, the indescribableness of God's great gift in his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.